Well, throughout the week, I decided to read a book on digital marketing. Digital marketing. The message of the book was simple. Create and serve your tribe online. Create and serve your tribe, the people who are attracted to your content online. I was motivated in this book to be an encourager, someone who has humour and a connector of people. I was promised that if I became a successful digital leader, my online tribe would grow in strength, number and world transformation. To obtain success, the author said, start by asking yourself this question. What does the world need? What does the world need? He then illustrated how one digital marketer answered this question. The world needs a big guy who loves butterflies. A big guy who loves butterflies. With depression rates skyrocketing in the West, seeing a happy guy with colourful little creatures in his hands was a strange yet comforting release of pressure to those who are following his content. I now find it quite interesting what people build their world-changing tribes around. It can be anything. And here's some of the examples I found online throughout the week. It can be a non-serious tribe like the animal contortionist tribe in the middle there, the hands up in photos tribe, or the bizarre minimalism tribe. While these are some hilarious tribes I found, there are also some serious tribes out there. There are tribes full of environmentalists, people who live to reduce fossil fuels, which is indeed important, and Minimalism, people who love to cull unnecessary possessions from their lives so that they can focus on the most important things. But while these tribes are full of noble causes that can make a positive impact on the world, there is one tribe, I believe, that far overshadows them all. The tribe is unknown to the world as we learnt last week. This tribe is built on a golden rule for life. Love one another. Love one another. But this love is not a worldly type of love. This is not the love that you see in the everyday. This love is unique. Our love, the Christian love, comes from somewhere. Our love finds its source of power in Jesus Christ, the life giver, the eternal life, as John has revealed himself to be. And so as we continue our study in 1 John today, my prayer is that that we will see that our love should abide in Jesus Christ, flow from the ultimate source of life, Jesus 
Christ. And to understand what this love looks like, we must find, we must reflect upon the enemy of Christ's love. And the enemy of Christ's love is the hatred in the world that opposes, opposes the eternal life. And to show that hatred opposes the life, John illustrates the hatred of Satan in a story. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet two brothers, Cain and Abel. They're on the screen right there. Since God showed pleasure in Abel's righteousness, Cain became jealous and grew in hatred. The wicked person always hates righteousness. In uncontrollable envy, Cain then took his brother out into a field and brutally slayed him. By murdering his brother, Cain acted in accordance with his true father, the evil one, Satan, John reveals it to be. And while hatred belongs to Satan, John also shows that hatred abides in death. The mark that we have passed from death to life is that we love one another, that we love the people in this room, that we are willing to die for them. That's love. And if we do not love each other, we are, John reveals, spiritually dead under the power of Satan. Since spiritually dead people are often full of hatred, John makes a bold point here. And it's going to make you uncomfortable. But this is John's point in the word of God. People with hatred in their heart are no different to murderers. In fact, John says that people with hatred are murderers. In essence, hatred is the desire to get rid of someone, whether or not one has the nerve or the occasion to perform the act of murder. That's what hatred really is, when you get down to the guts of it. When we say, I hate you, you have really upset me, I hate you. We are also saying in our heart, I want you out of my life. I want you dead. Since hate leads to murder, and since murder opposes the life and love of God that the gospel is trying to bring in the world and is indeed doing, no hater, John says, has eternal life residing in him. Verse 15. If we hate each other, John says, how can we have Jesus in us? How can we have Jesus in us? And so knowing that hatred opposes life, we must then be warned if there is an absence of love in our hearts. To examine our hearts, consider these questions. Who frustrates me the most in our church? Who frustrates you in our church right now? Why does this person get under my skin, get under your skin? Have these irritations evolved into hatred? To examine hearts, consider these questions as well. These questions related to body language. Are you distancing yourself from that individual? 
That's the big indicator that you're starting to get feelings of hatred. Are you crossing your arms in the presence of that individual? Are you pointing your body in the opposite direction to that individual? Especially when you're forced to have a conversation with them. This is a sign that you want to get out of that conversation. And so often, no pressure, when I'm talking to someone, if I see them start to go like this, I'm like, they're out. (laughs) Are you constantly looking at your phone in the presence of that individual? If you answered yes to some of these hatred diagnosis questions, I encourage you to be cautioned. You may, you may have hatred beginning to well up in your heart. If you're truly a child of God, I encourage you to repent from your hatred. I want to take you back to the first chapter where John says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, there is forgiveness for those who are growing in hatred. Turn to God and ask his spirit to help you love those who are incredibly hard to love. Amen? Amen. So we've heard the bad news. We've got that out of the way. Good. Well, let's look at the good news. Love gives eternal life. To make the point that love gives life, John uses the supreme example of love, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. John says that Christ laid down his life for us. This death on the cross was a willful act of God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, Jesus, made, God, sorry, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Without an act of pure love, our salvation is not possible. The deliberate death of Christ to heal us from all unrighteousness is the ultimate expression of love known to humanity. When you see Jesus dying on the cross, that is love. That is your calling. If you ever wonder, what does love look like? Jesus dying for you. The opposite of hatred. And so with this cross-shaped love in view, we must become people of the same love. This love is not a worldly love. The type that says, I will love you unless it disrupts my own quality of life. That's worldly love. Which really is not love. That's transactional love. If the occasion presents itself, we must be willing to show our love at all cost, even to the point of risking and losing our lives. That's the love you're being called to have as a Christian. It's not comfortable, is it? It's 
It's hard. You can even die following Jesus if you're really following him. Throughout the ages of church history, and we see the people around us right now on the um, stained glass windows, I suspect that some here, and I know that they are, there are full well, that they died for their faith because they loved you. We're also saints called to die if God calls us to go somewhere, even like Africa, where you hear many stories of missionaries dying. It's, and I find that it's hard to remember this, especially in Australia, where life is easy. But really, if our love isn't being felt in a way that causes us to sacrifice things in our own life, then I would encourage you to pursue this cross-shaped love. We are called to be crucified if the situation demands it, and that's a radical type of love. John then illustrates this love with everyday examples. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? His point is clear. If a brother refuses to offer hospitality, his love for God is just lip service. It's fake. It's not really gospel love. True love is displayed through genuine actions. Cross-shaped love actually says to retirement, and this is going to be a hard one to digest, if you're not dead yet, Love must go on. Love must go on. I'm encouraged when we sacrifice our worldly comforts to offer service to others. I'm encouraged when we, in our church, and I see it often, use our resources to help those in need. The opportunities that we have to offer this cross-shaped love is all around us. In my gospel community the other night, we reflected upon this question. When have you experienced the selfless love of a brother or sister in Christ? Jessica shared about the time of Evelyn's birth. After the birth, the wife of the minister of our church cooked meals for us each week and continued to do so for many, many months on. We were shocked by the financial sacrifices that she made on our behalf, the time and effort to cook and shop, and the fact that she worked a full-time job and had to care for her own family on top of caring for ours. Now it's clear that was cross-shaped love. That was life-giving love. That is the love that we're called to have if you want to have another example to hold on to. But John wants to raise one more point before we come to the end of our teaching. Love is not just our calling. Love actually brings us assurance of eternal life.
This basis of this assurance of salvation is that we belong to the truth. And belonging to the truth is tied to living a life of love. Throughout the whole of John, we've seen that if we love each other, you're probably God's children. You're probably God's children. Yet though this is a truth that brings us comfort, there are times when our hearts condemn us. Heart condemnation here refers to the act of closing our hearts towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Heart condemnation happens when we say, I cannot be bothered to drive that extra mile for you. And so if we're suffering from heart condemnation, we should not lose heart, John says. Since God is greater than our hearts in kindness and generosity, and since he knows everything about us, he can help us to resist our sinful nature, the nature that refuses to be generous. If our hearts are condemning us, we must continue to rest in God's presence, trusting in his greatness. But how can we rest in God's presence? The answer, I believe, is prayer. Prayer, the discipline that helps us to rely on God's strength and encouragement, is the cure, is the cure for a self-condemning heart. And so if you like to grow in Christian confidence, I encourage you to start maybe a prayer journal. At the end of the day or the week, ask yourself these questions. Where did I fail to offer cross-shaped love today or this week? And why did I act selfish, self, selfishly in those moments? Why did I not offer that love? By growing in self-awareness and by bringing your sin and doubt before God in prayer, you will learn to grow in love and will enjoy a deeper sense of assurance, of salvation. But let us continue. John also teaches us that sometimes our hearts do not condemn us. For those who don't struggle with heart condemnation, we should overflow with confidence. We can receive from God everything we ask, John says. If we ask, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, with obedient hearts of faith, he will answer your prayer. I'm optimistic of that. If we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil with hearts full of cross-shaped love, I'm optimistic that he'll give us the strength in this time to stand against the evil one and the injustices that we see in the church and in society. If we become people who keep his commandments and do what pleases him, there is good news. Such a desire to obey God's commands guarantees that God will answer our prayers. But what exactly are these commandments that we're called to obey? Well, John boils it down to one commandment. Ready? This is the command of the Christian faith. Everyone ready? If you get this, you get the Christian faith. This is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another 
as commanded us, as he commanded us. The Christian faith can be boiled down into this command, believe Jesus, love each other. This one command for Christian love can, be, can also be never separated from the source of its love, Jesus Christ. And that's why John says this is one command. It seems like two, believing and loving, but really one, because true love flows from Christ. True belief is expressed in love, inseparable, one command. We are called to have faith in Christ and express it through love. And if we follow this command, you have great assurance of salvation. You are people of the new creation. You are people of eternal life. That is something to trust. And so I want to ask you this question. How great is this assurance of salvation that comes from having faith in Jesus' love? And remember, that's one thing. Faith in Jesus' love. That's the Christian message. Faith in Jesus' love. One command. Do you believe that? Is that your rule for life? Do you have this assurance of salvation? If yes, you're a person of eternity. If yes, the angels are glorifying the fact that you are a child of God. This is the message we're called to reclaim. And may our assurance of salvation help us to continue to proclaim it. And so let me close with these words. Let your love abide in Christ alone. Amen. Let your love abide in Christ alone.